0: Ecclesiastes chapter number five and tonight I'm going to be preaching on words wealth and wisdom and I'm going to be preaching from the the whole chapter of Ecclesiastes five and we need to be careful of each of those words the first two words and wealth we need to be careful about and then the last one the third one wisdom we need to take after and follow and we can break this chapter up, I think, in those three words, words, wealth, and wisdom. So I'm not going to keep you on the porch long tonight, so we'll just go right into the house and, and get to the message. In our case, uh, in verse number one, we're going to be getting into the house of God. And That's what it says in verse number one. Keep thy foot when thou goest to the house of God, and be more ready to hear than to give the sacrifice of fools, For they consider not that they do evil. Be not rash with thy mouth, and let not thy heart be hasty to utter anything before God, for God is in heaven, and thou upon the earth. Therefore, let thy words be few. For a dream cometh through a multitude of busyness, and a fool's voice is known by the multitude of words. When thou vowest a vow unto God, defer not to pay it, for he hath no pleasure in fool's pay that which thou hast vowed. Better is it that thou shouldest not vow than that thou shouldest vow and not pay. Suffer not thy mouth to cause thy flesh to sin, neither say thou before the angel that it was an error. Wherefore should God be angry at thy voice and destroy the work of thy hands? For in the multitude of dreams, and many words, there are also divers' vanities for fear thou God so verses 1 through 7 deals with our words and I think in particular in our worship because he says right at the beginning keep your foot keep thy foot when thou goest to the house of God and so you had seven or five imperatives or five commands right there at the beginning keep your foot, be ready to hear don't be rash with your words, don't be hasty in your heart and let your words be few So right at the beginning, you've got those five commands, imperatives, do this and don't do that. And all of these revolve around being disciplined, temperate, and self-controlled in our minds and in our hearts and in our words. So the preacher says, watch your step when you go into, or keep thy foot, watch your step when you go into the house of God. And I think watch your step is the way we would say it, keep your foot. Uh, we say this when we're telling somebody to watch out and be careful. So you've been to somebody's house before, and you're walking out the door, and they say, watch your step, because they don't want you to fall, right? They want you to pay attention, be mindful where you're going. You're walking out the door, and it's a drop down a little bit. Be mindful. Don't trip. Don't fall. And I think that's what he's telling us. Keep your foot. Watch your step going to the house of God. So when we come into the house of God, watch your step. So when you go, the preacher says to be mindful of where you're going. Be mindful of where you're stepping. Be mindful of what you're doing, where you're going, whose house you're going to, and mind your mouth. Go to the house of God, saith the preacher, more ready to hear than to give the sacrifice of fools. So let's think how all that fits together for a second. So there's a sacrifice, he says, that was given in the house of God that was a sacrifice of fools. And I don't think it'd be some unlawful thing, like they would bring in a hog or something to the temple to offer a sacrifice. The priest wouldn't allow that. That's not a sacrifice of fools. The fool is an unwise person, I think, who would walk into the house of God not watching his step because those those two things are connected. So he says that you would keep your foot, watch your step, come into the house of God because you don't want to give the sacrifice of fools. You don't want to come into the house of God without thinking, without discernment. You want to come ready to hear. Be more ready to hear than to give the sacrifice of fools. So if you think of those and how they're compared to one another the way you're supposed to t- come to the house of god is to hear and to listen and to hear the word of god but the fool will give the sacrifice that would be the opposite of that to to not be discerning to not he- hearing god but to maybe go through the motions to receive god's instruction is what we're called here it's an open heart to god's word to hear and listen to the word even to be corrected or instruction, instructed, blessed or encouraged. So it's not just to hear something and say, Well, that was interesting and go, but it's to come and to be changed. Samuel said, Hath the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to hearken. Than the fat of rams. God told Saul to go and um, smite the enemy, and Saul didn't do it exactly right. And he said, Well, I thought this would be better to do it my way. And he said, You can offer all the sacrifices you want, Saul, but the Lord doesn't have delight in the sacrifice of fools. It's better to obey than sacrifice, it's better to hear than to offer the fat of rams. So to obey and to hear is is the same thing. So it's not just to listen, but it's to hear. It's hearkening to to what God says. It's receiving God's word as God's word. And then um, that parallelism that we see there is comparing those two things. So we want to hear God and obey him, And take it as God's word. So we we come into God's house to hear God's word. And to hearken unto it. And to keep our foot to to remember who wrote the words in this book. Now the fool comes to offer foolishly. Perhaps out of habit. Perhaps because they think they're supposed to. Not in faith but out of obligation. Well that's not pleasing unto God. That wasn't pleasing to God. For them to come and, and offer their sacrifices and go through the motions, even though they did it correctly, that wasn't pleasing to God. In Isaiah chapter number 1, in verse number 11, so a few pages over to the right, we have, um, we have this about Sacrifices. So in verse number 10, he says, Hear the word of the Lord, ye rulers of Sodom. Ye ear unto the law of our God, ye people of Gomorrah. So hear, listen. To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices unto me, saith the Lord? I am full of the burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed beasts. And I delight not in the blood of bullocks or of lambs or he goats. When you come to appear before me, who hath required this at your hands to tread my courts, bring no more vain oblations. Incense is an abomination unto me. The new moons, the Sabbath, the calling of assemblies, I cannot away with it. It is iniquity, even the solemn meeting. Your new moons, your appointed feasts, my soul hateth. They are a trouble unto me. I am weary to bear them. So the Lord God said, when you're coming to the house offering the sacrifice of fools, what is that to me? You don't come in faith. You don't come to worship me. You do what I tell you out of superstition or whatever the case. But to hear is better. So God calls them to hear and to listen, but also to do what God has said through faith. And so I think this is what it means to keep your foot. Be mindful when you enter into the house of God. Vanity, right? That's the, the theme of Ecclesiastes. Vanity. What is more vain than wheel worship? What is more vain than a, than a pointless, thoughtless, superstitious religion that has no object of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? So we shouldn't come rashly, verse number two, with our mouth to the house of God. And don't be rash even in our prayers. So when we come to the Watch our foot when we come to God's house. We're mindful of who it is we listen to and we're mindful of who it is that we speak to. Be not rash with your mouth and let not the heart be hasty to utter anything before God because God is in heaven and you are in the earth and let your words be few. God is the almighty God. We're down here below and it's not the distance that's... um, the important thing it is it's, it's God is in heaven. He is upon the throne. He is the Almighty. He is the Omnipotent One. He is the, the King of all kings. And so let us not be hasty and rash with our mouth when we come to the house of God and, and speak unto God. light shed on verse number 2 by illustration in verse number 3 when he talks about a dream coming through the multitude of busyness and the fool's voice is known by the multitude of words so we're just building on this illustration and so now he's giving giving the illustration on the same point that we're going along with about dreams well this is an interesting verse verse 3 is so what's the preacher mean? by a dream coming through the multitude of busyness. Well, listen to what the Cleveland Clinic said about dreams. Doctors have several working theories as to why we dream. Dreaming during a REM stage of sleep is associated with a consolidation of memories. That dreaming represents an important cognitive function, brain activity that occurs when we're dreaming is similar to the memory processing brain activity we experience when we're awake So whenever you think about something all day long your brain um, is, is processing, processing that in the night it, It's just an important feature um, that, that helps us remember things and and so that's why when you're ex- it goes on when you're experiencing anxiety or stress you tend to dream more because you' got a lot of your mind. And it's weighing heavy on you. And so when you go to sleep, your brain is taking all the things that you thought about during the day and it's putting it in your memories and, and, and doing all the things that the brain does. And this type of dream, um, th- that's why the types of dreams that you have change whenever you're under stress or anxiety. The doctor goes on to say that nightmares and stressful dreams about being chased or in a frightening situation are common when you're stressed. Because um, our dreams are processing the emotions that you have. And so that's, that's one of the prevailing theories. And I thought it was interesting because it's sort of what Solomon said. Right? So, for a dream cometh through the multitude of business. So this, this doctor is saying through their research... Um, well Solomon so many thousands of years ago was right that our dreams come from the multitude of busyness when your mind is overwhelmed and you're stressed about things or you've got a lot on your mind then you might dream about themes that that you're experiencing experiencing and the funny thing is I was studying this and um, I was reading about uh, this reading the commentaries and everything and Really, really thinking about it. And guess what happened when we went to bed that night? <laughs> Had all kinds of uh, crazy dreams and so forth. Well, what do those dreams mean? Well, they don't mean anything. In fact, that's what the preacher tells us. For a dream cometh through the multitude of busyness, and a fool's voice is known by the multitude of words. So he's comparing dreams, which are also often nonsensical or terrifying, whimsical, ridiculous or whatever just processing the day's anxieties or we don't even know why but it's like the voice of a fool is known by the multitude of the words most of the time the fool is one who doesn't know when to stop talking okay so what's this have to do with anything well keep your feet watch your step don't be rash with your mouth Because when your day is full of care and worry and anxiety and trouble and a multitude of of busyness, the temptation is for us to be towards God like a dream, empty and meaningless, or a fool's voice with a multitude of words. Because, in verse 4, when thou vowest a vow unto God, defer not to pay it. So that is connected. Keep your feet. Verse 4 tells us why this is all a problem. Because when when you come to the house of God, and you don't think about why you're there, and you don't think about who you're talking to, and you don't think about who you're listening to, and then you've got the day's stress and the anxiety and the busyness of the day, and you're offering the fool's sacrifice, well, you're liable to make a vow in that stress or in that uh, trial that, that is vanity. When thou pray, it, vow, is a vow, and God defer not to pay it. For he has no pleasure in fools pay that which thou hast vowed. So don't, don't come to the house of God in haste, without thinking, without considering who it is you're talking to and what it is you're saying and what it is you're asking. Keep your feet. When the day is full of anxiety and worry, don't be rash in your prayers making vows and hasty making vows in what you say to God. So, for example, Lord, if you grant me X, Y, Z, then I'll promise I'll do A, B, and C. Oh, if you'll only give me this, then I promise, I promise I'll do that. Oh, if you would only give me this, Lord. How many prayers have been offered in that regard, bowing a vow. Oh, Lord, if you do this for me, I, I promise I'll start going to church. I promise I'll get my life right. You know, those kind of vows. I promise I'll do this, Lord. I think this is what it's saying. <clears throat> People want something through through, and they're hasty and they don't think who they're talking to and they offer these vows. So don't be rash. Be disciplined and measured. Certainly, I'm not saying don't pray. Certainly pour out your hearts and faith. But don't be... Rash in making vows to God thinking that once God gives you what you want then we can just forget about the whole thing. Because that's what goes on with the rest of that section. God be angry at that voice when you say, well that was an error I was under a lot of pressure whenever I said that let's not make too much of that. But the Lord makes much of what you say to him. It's not a vain thing to pray to God. It's not a vain thing to worship God. Everything out under the sun is vanity. It's certainly not a vain thing to, to pray into God. It's certainly not vanity to offer worship to God. It's certainly not vanity to hear the word of God. In fact, this section gives us something very important to consider. When much of the, the surrounding thus far has been vanity and vexation of spirit, Here, he's saying the opposite. Here, watch your foot. This is important. Watch your mouth. This is important. Watch your ears. This is important. Because when you promise something to God, you have to pay what you promise. It's better not to vow at all than to vow something and then break it. Don't vow and cause the flesh to sin Don't vow and write checks that you're not intending to cash or you can't cash. Don't make vows and then when it's time to do what you promised, find an excuse and crawl fish out of it because God is not pleased with that kind of frivolous attitude towards him. Vows are serious. In um, Numbers chapter 30, verse number two, listen to what the Lord says about vows in his word. Uh, Numbers 30, verse number two. If a man vow a vow unto the Lord, or swear an oath to bind his soul with a bond, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceedeth out of his mouth. You swear an oath to bind your soul. You shall do all that proceeds out of your mouth. The Lord is not. This is this is not something that the, that one should take lightly. When you vow a vow, when you swear, um, the Lord holds you to that. Now, bad vows can even be redeemed. Um, Remember Jephthah, um, whenever he said that he'd give the Lord whatever came out of his house first, and it was his daughter that came out? Well, uh, Leviticus 27 actually gives the price of the value of a human. So, and it's specifically for that case. Because not everybody was allowed to work in the house of the Lord. And so it was only the Levites, and only certain people were allowed there. And so if somebody vowed a vow that they would give themselves unto the Lord... There was a, a wage scale that you could offer, and the priest would tell you how much that person was worth, and then you would, you would pay that. You would pay what you owed. And Jephthah, I think, could have went to Leviticus 27 and said, well, this is what my daughter's worth, and I'm going to pay, pay the vow that I owed. Also, Numbers 30, um, a wife could make a vow... And if her husband's standing there, Numbers 36 through 8, um, the husband say, no, she, she's not going to do that. So the husband could cancel out a vow that a wife makes um, and, and that kind of thing. But, so that, that's not to say if you vow to do something sinful, that the Lord wants you to make sin twice. Um, but the, the point of it is, don't make foolish and rash vows. Let your yes be yes, your no be no. Don't promise something to God and then think that it it doesn't matter. So in the multitude of dreams, in many words, there's a multitude of vanities. I'm not going to tell you what I dreamed because it was silly and no one would want to hear it anyway, right? Have you ever had somebody tell you about their dream and they tell you and it seems like they've gone on for about 45 minutes about the dream? and you don't, you're lost, you don't even understand what's happening in the story, well, that's because uh, dreams are, are meaningless. Don't, we're not to follow them. The multitude of words, vanities, anxiety, and stress, and dreams, and pointless ramblings. It's meaningless. It's a vapor. It's fog on the river. So don't fear dreams. Or don't fear interpretations of dreams. Don't see them as guides or foreshadowings any more than the empty voice of the fool. Rather, fear God. He will keep you. He will protect you. Listen to God and not your dreams. Listen to God and not the multitude of ramblings. Watch your step. Remember who it is you worship. Fear Him. Listen to God not to your dreams. Listen to God, not the voice of fools. Hear the word of God. Watch your mouth when you pray. It's better in stressful situations like that just to confess your sins and praise God for his attributes. But be careful um, in in the vows uh, and trying to bargain with God. Adam Clark said, if if by disturbed state of mind during the day or by satanic influence you dream an evil dream, don't give way to any unreasonable fears or gloomy forebodings of any coming mischief. Fear God. Fear neither the dream nor its interpretation. God will take care of you. He will protect you. Most certainly, he that fears God need fear nothing else. Well, may an upright soul say to Satan himself, If I fear God, and because I fear him, I do not fear thee. So, watch your words um, as, as we worship. Well, we leave the house of God, and now we head back to work, look around at the world's wealth, and then we we see what kind of problems are out there with wealth. So that's the second part of the message, starting... Um, In verse number eight, if thou seest the oppression of the poor and violent perverting of judgment and justice in the province, marvel not at the matter. For he that is higher than the highest regardeth and there be higher than they. Moreover, the prophet of the earth is for all. The king himself is served by the field. In verse number 10, he that loveth silver shall not be satisfied with silver, nor he that loveth abundance with increase. This is also vanity. When goods increase, they are increased that eat them. And what good is there to the owners thereof, saving the beholding of them with their eyes? The sleep of a laboring man is sweet, whether he eat little or much, but the abundance of the rich will not suffer him to sleep. There is a sore evil which I have seen under the sun, namely riches kept for the owners thereof to their hurt. But those riches perished by evil travail, and he begetteth a son, and there is nothing in his hand. And as he came forth of his mother's womb, naked shall he go as he came, and shall take nothing of his labor, which he shall, or he may carry in his hand. And this also is a sore evil, and at all points as he came, so shall he go. And what profit hath he that has labored for the wind? All his days also he eateth in darkness, and he hath much sorrow and wrath with sickness. So wealth can be more than money. Wealth can be anything of value. In this section, we find how wealth can be used and abused, it can bless or be a burden. I think having the internet is, is wealth. You can have a multitude of books, you know, carry around in your pocket. I've got um you know the, the Kindle app and Google Books on my phone and I have hundreds of books that's on my phone. I could sit in the doctor's office and I could pull up any number of, of books that I just got for free off the internet from um books by Charles Spurgeon or John Gill or John Owen, just there for free. Books that 75 years ago would have cost me hundreds of dollars just get free and it around in my pocket. That's, that's wealth. That's a, a great value. Right? So we, we have all kinds of wealth that we can use to our advantage. Well, Verses 8 through 10 show us that actions have consequences, and wealth and power can be a curse for everyone, or resources can be a blessing for everyone. So look at the oppression of the poor. There's a violent people who pervert justice. Wicked magistrates, wicked police, wicked judges, wicked politicians. They game the system to oppress the poor. Who do you call when the police rob you? Where do you go when the people in charge are the ones breaking the law? Where do you appeal when the government's the one who's your adversary? And that's what you have here. You have people who have wealth and power and influence and use it to the, to oppress the people. You tell me how someone can make $100,000 a year as a congressman and then leave with $100 million in the bank. I don't know what kind of math, I don't know what kind of... Uh, investment plan that they have that's a pretty good one isn't it to go into public service and leave a hundred thousand times richer than you got there what is that well that's people using their power and their influence to oppress the people they're supposed to be ruling over or uh, legislating over or whatever the case may be and that's what you have here who do you go to well there's always somebody higher everybody's got a boss there's always someone higher you say, well, I get to the top of the chain and there is no one higher. Well, if you ever finally get to the top of the chain where there's someone that no one on earth answers to, the answer is there's a higher than they. They answer to God. But oppression and justice spreads and it corrupts. It doesn't stay in one place. It corrupts. It corrupts the land. It corrupts the society. They have consequences. So here you have somebody who's poor and they're oppressed and it goes all the way up the ladder to the the highest person in the land. And that sin has impacted everybody along that line. So you think about that one oppression and how many people and how widespread it affects. So they use their wealth and their power for a curse, not only upon themselves but to their whole um, sphere of influence. But in the next verse, you find that the profit of the earth or the food that's produced by the farmers, for everybody. Food is wealth. And the Lord blesses the farmer in the field who in turn blesses the king. The humble farmer's actions have consequences in society and it goes all the way up to the top. But his wealth is, is shared and his wealth is... Is returned for his own profit, but it's also returned for the king's good. He is served by the field. So wealth is not the problem. The farmer has great wealth, and he can use that, the wealth of the field, the, the, the produce, the, the animals, the food that he produces. It's a gift from God, but it goes and it blesses all the people that, that partake of that. So the wealth isn't the problem. It's a tool. It can be used for good, or it can be used for evil. It can, be, it can harm us or it can hurt us. It can mean the means of blessing our souls or the means of drying us up. The person who loves silver will never be satisfied with it. You can never have enough money. And when your goods increase, so does your wants. Your, your wants and your spending most times increases with, with the amount of money that you're that you bring in, and that's what Solomon is saying here: that goods increase, so we increase the things that eat them, and so you're never satisfied. Always just a bit more. <clears throat> Wealth cannot satisfy because there's always something there to take it away. There's always something that breaks. There's always some bill to pay. There's always uh, something to come along. to to want to gobble it up. In verse 12, we had a hard-working man who comes home from work and he's exhausted. He lays his head on his pillow and drifts straight off to sleep. The sleep of a tired man is sweet. You ever had that sleep before? You've worked so hard that you didn't think he was going to be able to to make it? So tired that yeah, didn't even feel like eating just come home and go straight to bed when your head hit the pillow oh sweet for your head hit the pillow well that's a gift from God you may have toiled all day long you may have toiled for 20 hours but there when you lay down the mind is shut off <coughs> the body is at rest you've done all that you can do for the day You've tried your hardest, you've done your best and you lay down and it doesn't matter if you had beans and rice or it didn't matter if you had hardly anything at all. Once you go to sleep, that's sweet to the working man, rich whether he has anything or not, to drift off into rest and then that's it for the day. But the abundance of a rich man will keep him up at night. He gets anxious about his money. And worried about his stocks. Working on his plans for tomorrow. His abundance keeps him from resting. The working man's poverty and his work gives him sleep, but the rich man's money keeps him up all night. So I don't have very much in this life. Well, you've got very little to worry about, (laughs) comparatively. Right? So... You you don't have a million head of cattle out in the fields to worry about. You don't have bills to pay. You don't have employees to pay. You don't have to worry about the frost. You don't have to worry about um, if it's going to kill all your your crops. and You don't have to worry about your investments and and if your employees are stealing from you and, and if the bank is doing what it's supposed to do. All this abundance also brings all kinds of adversaries. So you have the rich man who has his big spread and his big found that uh, his big uh, plantation. He's got all his, his, his wealth and, and all his business and he's pacing the floor at night, got all these things to worry about and the farm hands out in his bunk saw loss, fast asleep. See, what the man had worked for is also giving him an anxiety and the man who doesn't have anything and just thankful to have a job can rest in his labor. And the preacher said, that's a sore evil that you work in this world for things that just end up killing you. What good does it do to work, he asked? By gain, then you turn around and you're not satisfied or even worse off, the thing that you're working for ends up killing you. You fill up your house, but you're empty on the inside. We come into this world without a stitch of clothes on and that's how we're going to leave Without, with nothing, we can take nothing with us. You get to take everything with you that you brought into the world. You get to take that back with you, which is absolutely nothing. So he said, you end up working for the wind. And my mom hoarded, not hoarded, but she collected stuff, and she has all kinds of little knickknacks and stuff that she had collected. Over the years, but she liked it and she got a lot of pleasure out of it. And I'm not faulting her for that, but I mean, I don't know if anybody would actually want that besides her, right? You know, she, but, but that's what he's saying you gather stuff, you gather stuff, but then you leave it, and then what's going to happen to it? Ends up a man full of possessions sitting home eating supper in the dark with sorrow and wrath and sickness. Verse 17. And that's the picture that we leave with in that section. A man who's worked for money, sitting alone, a home in the dark amongst all of his riches, sick and bitter, sorrowful. So wealth can be a great tool. It can be used to bless. It can be used to, um, to glorify God. Paul said, Godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it's certain we can carry nothing out. Having food and raiment, let us therewith be content. But they that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and de- many foolish, hurtful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all evil, while some coveted after they have er- erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. So, it's not the wealth that's the problem, but it's the love of it. Because you're chasing after vanity. It's like you're tra- going down to the river and try to bottle up the fog and make that fog happen. And say, as long as I can have fog and just a little bit more fog, I'll be happy. And then the sun gets a little bit higher, and what happens to it? It burns up, and you can reach after it, you can grab it, you can try to put it in a bottle, but it's just, it's nothing. It'll be gone. But to have it, and to enjoy it, and to use it for God's glory. And as Jesus said, to lay up treasures, not upon the earth, but but treasures in heaven. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. This man, in verse 17, all of his days he eateth in darkness. His treasure is on the earth. And all the sorrow he has, and all the sickness and so forth that, he, that comes along with it, that's his treasure. Well, verse 18, Behold, that which I have seen, it is good and comely for one to eat and to drink and to enjoy the good of all of his labor that he taketh under the sun, and all the days of his life, which God giveth him, for it is his portion. Every man also whom God hath given riches and wealth, and hath given him power to eat thereof, and to take his portion, and to rejoice in his labor, this is the gift of God. For he shall not much remember the days of his life, because God answereth him in the joy of his heart. So, in conclusion, here's wit wisdom. We had our words, we had our wealth, and now here's the wisdom. It's good and fitting to sit down and enjoy your supper, receive the fruit of your labor as a gift from God. If you just scan your eyes back through this last section, starting in verse number 9, there's a lot about food, serving by the field, um, consuming verse 12, whether he eats little or much. You had the guy um, eating in the dark. When he comes back to this food um, example again. And he says, good for you to sit down, eat your supper as a gift from God. So, what is this? It's being content. Rather than trying to find satisfaction in material possessions, focusing on how much you have or how little you have, enjoy your portion. Enjoy what God has given you, whether it be big or small, and praise the Lord for it. Sit down and take a bite of your biscuit and praise the Lord for it. Enjoy it. Be happy about it. I've, um, I've eaten in some gone with some of my family members certain occasions and such and eaten in some pretty fancy restaurants and I'd rather, have, uh, <laughs> I'd rather have biscuits and gravy than some of that stuff I've had at those fa- fancy restaurants any day of the week now, I'd rather just have the, the food that um, that I'm used to that I like and praise the Lord for it Right. Don't say, well, look at what I don't have. Look what you do have. And praise God that you have it. God has blessed men with riches and wealth, and he also has blessed them with the power to enjoy it. And that's a gift of God. Not only does God give the gift, but he gives us the ability to enjoy it. So a crooked heart's ungrateful for the gift, and then ungrateful that he doesn't enjoy the gift. So you sit down and, you can either sit down and, enjoy a big plate of pancakes and praise God for it and praise God for uh, the, the fact that you can get out of a tree, you can get the, the sap out of a tree, a maple tree that is probably the sweetest thing that, that there is and pour it all over that pancake just stuff that just comes out of a tree and pour it all over the pancake and it tastes, oh boy, it's so good and you praise God for that and it, ta- it hits your taste buds And then you're happy about that and say, boy, God is good. Not only has He given me this food to eat, but He's given me taste buds to enjoy it. And He's given me a house to eat it in and a family to eat it with. Isn't God good? Sit down and forget about the vanity of life for a while. You know, you come home and you sit down and and you have supper, forget about the vanity the vanity and the vexation of life and remember that god has given you more than you deserve and and enjoy that moment with your family enjoy that moment in the goodness and blessings of god because what's already happened already happened there's nothing you can do about it what's going to happen tomorrow if you make it to tomorrow is still in god's hands enjoy the portion that god has given you and rejoice in it because otherwise you're happy about the past, you're sad about the past, worried about the future, and then skipping the present, Skip in the gift that God's given you. Enjoy what God has given you now, this portion now. Enjoy and rejoice in the labor because it's the gift of God. God is good, and you only find contentment in Christ. You were made to enjoy the gifts of God, and it's only through Christ can you enjoy him forever. So in closing, I'll read Hebrews 13, 5 and 6. Let your conversation be without covetousness and be content with such things as you have. For he has said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. So we may boldly say the Lord is my helper and I will not fear what man shall do unto me. God adds a blessing to his word.